Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your word, and we ask that you would teach us how we can understand you and worship you, how we can cling to you because of how you've revealed yourself to us. We pray that we, you would increase our knowledge of you for our worship and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The passage that was just read that we'll be examining this morning is in many ways the the first dramatic twist in this new universe that God has created. Drama unfolds itself as Adam and Eve feel amazingly incomplete. And you have to think, all that was made and given to them, and they felt needy. And after they felt incomplete, they then did wrong things. And then after they did wrong things, they rushed to hide themselves from what was to come. And they they knew that something was going to come because of what they have done. And here God meets them and questions their mood. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you should be ashamed? But that's not the most dramatic thing. In our text this morning, for the first time in revealed history to us, the Lord God who commands the the mountains to be separated from the sea for all of the things that, that man could see exist, the same Lord who separates darkness from light, the same God who breathed life into man and into woman, now turns himself dramatically and speaks directly to Satan. Now, this will not be the only time that he'll approach this dark serpent, but this is the first standoff in human history. This is the first time where everything will be laid on the table and sides will be forever drawn, but there's more here than than just meets the eye, just in a clean reading of the Scriptures. For what we see in this text, we see God revealing Himself. Not just as someone who created things, not just as someone who questions mankind, but but we see God as a warrior, as someone who will promise to deliver a death blow to evil and a deliverance to his own people. Our time this morning will be spent entirely in chapter 3, verse verse 15. Now, if you're here today and you're not used to the Bible, or you're not used to Christianity, or maybe you're just not used to what the church does, you should know that we believe these words are actually the very words of God for God's people to to know and to understand and to follow. We see in this text that, that nothing existed before Him, and then everything exists because of Him. That in six days he created everything, and then on the seventh day he rested. And this was supposed to be for the good of his creation and for the good of his special creation, man and woman. And we're told in the scriptures that he created man to rule over the earth, to rule over all that was before him. And together with his wife, they were to enjoy the goodness or the fruit of God's creation. But, but it wasn't soon after this that man fell into temptation. And you saw that from the reading here. When they did something wrong, there was just a lot of blame shifting going on. Right? When he spoke to Eve, she blamed someone else. When he spoke to Adam, he blamed someone else. 
They were supposed to subdue the earth or own the earth, but instead they became servants of creation. And they fell in towards sin. And they fell under sin where the darkness of Satan, just through a whisper, changed all of history. Now there's no better way to ruin a story than to give away the ending. But that's exactly what happens here in chapter 3 of Genesis, where this big buildup of the fruit of God's labor showed its way towards sin because of man's actions. But, but here God is going to give a special promise of what's going to happen at the end. And so first we see that there is a problem in this story, and the problem here is one of sin. So if you're using an outline, uh, one that was provided in the bulletin, we're now at point one. There's a problem of sin. Evil, sin, and Satan. Evil is around us. Evil was around them. We see this through a serpent creeping up on them and talking to them. And Satan is ever-present in the midst of terror. Here we see something magnificent, though. Satan is spoken to directly by God. Now, a couple of my friends have uh, been princesses at Disney World during different summers. So, so I know some true princesses, you know, Belle or whatever the other ones are. And one of the things they teach you when you're working at Disney World is people who work at Disney World will actually never point. So I might look at you and say, you should go that direction for the bathroom. Using the index finger to point at something is only what wicked people do in Disney movies or Disney stories. It's the stepsisters who point at people. It's the wicked stepmother who points at people. So they they use their hands and they guide it. And I bring that up to say, here we see this divine index finger pointing directly at Satan. And a blow is going to be delivered. It seems as if God is pointing at Satan and accusing him. He's getting in his face and he's promising Satan's utter defeat. And he has good reason to be angry, doesn't he? God has perfect reason to be angry against Satan and at what Satan does because we see not only in this passage, but all over the Bible where Satan is a deceiver. Satan is a wicked figure. Satan is deceitful and devious and cunning in a variety of facades. He seeks to influence people for his own glory and to defame God. Matthew 13 says that the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. He's devious. And we see that in 2 Corinthians where it says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Here he was just presenting an idea or maybe a unique philosophy to Adam and Eve. Is it so wrong to eat of that tree? Doesn't God want you to do that? And had they just listened to the Lord, they wouldn't have been deceived by what Satan had said. He's also a slanderer. He deceives many people. In 2 Timothy, it says, imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He also works fake miracles for false Christs and false prophets, Matthew 24 says, will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray God's elect. He appoints false prophets. He misuses scriptures just by twisting around some of the words in this case and also in other cases in the Bible, we see that he is a disruptor and he blinds unbelievers by his work. Second Corinthians says to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, he presents to them blinding light. He's a hunter aiming to destroy. 
A couple of years ago, I saw a YouTube video where an adorable cheetah was hunting a monkey. And it didn't last very long because the cheetah destroyed the life of the monkey. And so what we see there is terror taking havoc on another animal. But then a, an amazing twist happened in this video where, where the cheetah ended the life of the monkey, but then the cheetah saw that the monkey had a child. And the cheetah got nervous. It began to pace around. It began to, to see something that it had caused havoc. It didn't know that the, that the monkey had a baby. And so it started to come around the monkey and actually care for the monkey and actually fend off hyenas who were now trying to attack this baby monkey until they both, at the end of the video, pleasantly and quietly were sleeping side by side. A hunter turned to a sympathizer towards the end. On the video, you can see this once ferocious cat now nervously pacing and then now triumphantly caring, doing something good out of something bad, defending the baby. And we see in this short clip, this evil hunting, devouring, and then suddenly turning towards a sympathetic giant. But what we need to recognize is that the serpent in our passage and in the scripture and in our lives is nowhere near a sympathizing killer. The devil is always portrayed as a dragon or a serpent who talks or the prince of this world. The irony in our case is that we often see ourselves separate from Satan, but rather we need to recognize that we inherit from Satan the fruit of the labor of Adam and Eve. Not only are we practicing what they do with sin in our own lives, but we are inheriting the sin altogether. We see ourselves as the cheetah in this YouTube video. Yeah, we do things bad here and there, but given enough circumstances, given enough time, given enough opportunity to change, we can actually do some good if we're only allowed to do some good. We don't think we'll ever be like true evil. If, if enough things just come our way, then we can just circle around it a little bit and then become good-natured. Have you ever seen someone give a really good impression of someone else? Maybe in comedy or a character in a movie, or maybe you yourself can, can show what it's like to be another person. To really give an impression of someone, you have to really know that person. You have to really understand their tics or their facial expressions or their tone or their pattern of speech. You have to know something behind just the visual. You have to understand that person altogether. And knowing something is the idea that you embrace it in such a way that it actually becomes a part of you. I had a friend in high school who could, who could give impressions of famous baseball players. He, he could switch, you know, every baseball player has like a unique swing, and he could do all those swings. He studied those guys. He tried to emulate those guys. He tried to even hit like those guys. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we need to recognize that we far too often are doing impressions of evil. When we know something, it, it rats, wraps itself around us and almost merges with us. But beyond imitation, there are things that we just naturally inherit. You know, you might say that you have the scowl like your mother, or you walk just like your dad. And when Adam and Eve desired to know good and evil in eating the forbidden fruit, they didn't know evil in an observational manner, but became part of it and it with them. And this is what we see we inherit from Adam and Eve. 
We are, we are naturally sinful people as much as we act out in sin. And so what we see in this passage is that there is a problem of sin in this passage, but we also see that there is actually a problem of sin in our own lives. We can look at this as a fairy tale, which it's not. It really happened. And we can see it's so separate from our own lives, but we have to recognize that we are much like the characters in this story for us. And so man sins is discovered, and then hides. A problem is exposed here, and the problem of sin is revealed, and it, and it separates man from God's goodness. And when we approach this passage, an awful thing is promised because of that sin. There's hostility because of that sin. Between people and between God, we see hostility that's going to be bringing out or between people, or even evil, we see that there is a hostility that is now placed in there. So we see in verse 15 where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So we see first that there is a problem of sin, and then secondly, we see that this, there is a promise of hostility. Secondly, there's a promise of hostility. Satan is after all of us. Satan is after you. He is a hunter who cannot bring down the glory of God. So what he does is he takes his aim and he turns it to devour God's people. Everything that God loves, Satan wants to tear down. He's not just interested in bringing down creation, but he wants to bring down God's people. He wants to devour our souls. Now, I need to take a moment here and just say that the Bible is not a book strictly telling us how we ought to live in order to live a better life. But more than anything, the Bible announces what God has done and what God is doing for God's people and for his own glory. Now, there are all types of ways that you and I can, can view how God is doing his own will and his own glory. We, we call this history, where we're trying to understand what has happened and how we can learn from that and see from that. And there are all kinds of histories that you and I could understand. There are histories of war. There are histories of culture. There are histories of politics. There are even histories of art or music. But in our context, we, we acknowledge all of those things while seeing that there is a constant message being traced through the story of the Bible. And the history that we see is, is actually shown to us in chapter 3, verse 15, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So you and I can look all the way back to that text and see how history begins to unfold itself according to God's will and by his own ways. This is what is called biblical history or a biblical theology where we understand that the Bible is a story not like, a, not like a Disney story, but an unfolding of what God has done through his people's lives. And the promise at the beginning of the story is that he will put enmity between the woman and the seed of the man. There is a history of all of our souls, a glorious, true, overarching history. And it's this history that God, starting a promise, promises hostility raising up a seed that is going to fight this terrible tyrant. He's going to diminish him and deliver his people. So what we, what we see here is if you're reading the Bible, you can actually place like on little coat racks where you can see different seeds that pop up, different characters like Adam or Abraham or David or the church. 
And they all come in carrying on the purpose of this history, trying to play out this hostility and trying to overcome the wickedness of the devil. And the Bible is nothing but the outworking of all of that. That's our message. How God is promising and then does beat and destroy evil and will ultimately undo all of Satan's horrifying work. And you notice that God put this right in the devil's face. It wasn't abstract. It wasn't passive-aggressive, but he says, I shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning that he looked Satan in the eye and said that there will be someone who will come, and he will crush your head. There is absolute certainty in God's voice here. There's, there's no probability in what he says here. So if this is the history that we have at the very beginning, what has happened since? What is happening in our own lives or what is happening in the rest of the scripture? How does this history unfold? We, we might follow the story all the way through and it began where two sons of Adam and Eve, Abel and Cain, Cain the representative of Satan, Abel, the representative of the seed of the woman, the man full of hate and murder was Cain. He had, he had murderous thoughts in his heart and he murdered his brother. Yes, but Abel, the seed of the woman, was raised by God, yet Abel was struck down in murder. The deliverer through the woman is still needed. And so what we see is if we just read the Bible plainly, we have these warriors that pop up. And these figures might be the salvific people of the Lord. But again, we say that they remain like the rest of them. You might look at Noah, who was supposed to preserve the truth of the world. Noah and his family just ate people against the rest of the world. The whole world was destroyed and eight people were saved. So here might be this triumphant saint, this, this final conqueror of evil where God smashes everything evil around, but he preserves this man. And then what happened to Noah? He fell, he sinned, and he too died. Then we come to see the man whose name was Abram. We see where God called him out and God called him out and revealed himself to him and said, Through you, I'm going to bring a Savior. Through your family, I'm going to bring a Messiah. And the seed of the woman, Abram, known now as Abraham, and out of his offspring comes the people of Israel and God's chosen special people, the bearer of his goodness. So we might be tempted to think that these are the places where salvation will have effect. This is where evil will be conquered and God's people will ride out victorious. But God's people are led into sin. There's a struggle within this nation as well as with the nations outside. And this is nothing but the conflict or the hostility or the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. History, it's showing itself as God losing again and again. It's a breathtaking story just to read the Old Testament as a unit where there are sometimes you might be thinking that this is where God is going to win and evil will be overcome and will be struck down. But we see again and again and again that the seed of the woman doesn't play out that way. The enemy seems to be triumphant. The children of Israel are almost gone. There's no one left to deliver God's people. Even poor Elijah sits under a tree and says, I'm the only one left. And here's the dilemma and the conflict. It goes on and people begin to feel hopeless. Where they started out Hopeful, now they find themselves hopeless because the seed of the woman is no match for the seed of the serpent. 
Evil seems to always overcome God's people. Evil always seems to have its day. Evil always seems to be adding up the trophies. And so God sends special messengers. So we see this in the prophets where God sends prophets to God's people and basically their message is, hold on. The Messiah will appear. We are in the midst of the last times, but the Lord will deliver you by His chosen one. And what's amazing is after he sends his prophets, there is dead silence for 400 years where God did not speak to his people seemingly anymore. People who once had great hope, they waited for years and years, decades and decades, centuries and centuries. And after the prophets for 400 years, there was no word from God after Malachi. Imagine the desire of the people. They would have known what Moses had written, and what we see in Genesis 3, verse 15, that there was supposed to be someone who was going to crush the head of the serpent. But for centuries, where is he? You can imagine their cries echoing David's, where are you, Lord? The enemies overwhelm us and overcome us. Our tears are our food day and night. And even historically, Jerusalem was ransacked. No longer could statues and mighty walls remind God's people of God's goodness. So it seemed that the seed of the serpent had won. The devil certainly seems triumphant. Where it looked like a strong God, strong God points his finger at Satan, it seems like Satan has the last laugh. But what we see when we keep reading on, almost an exposition of what's happening in this passage, is we come to the truths of the New Testament where we are reminded of what's written in Galatians, where it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Galatians, we read these words that when the fullness of time had come, meaning it's like God was, was warming up before his death blow was going to be held by the enemies of the Lord. The words reviewing of, of what you would see in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the Messiah actually comes. He is the true seed of the woman. Here, the real seed of the woman, born of a virgin, not of a man, born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. You see in Matthew's gospel, the seed of the serpent trying to conquer and kill the seed of the woman, though he fails. And he didn't end there. Watch the Son of God in the New Testament. This seed be tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Or remember the the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were after him. The seed of the serpent was aiming to crush the seed of the woman. Was there ever so much hatred towards one man? Such demonic work turned at one figure? If you go on and read all these four Gospels of our Bible, look at how they treat the Son of God who came to serve and who came to save, who worked miracles and who was just doing acts of kindness on his way to Calvary. Look at how the world treated him. His own people didn't even receive him. People from his own town mocked him. They threw stones at him. They spit on his face. They all joined in a mighty chorus by singing the hymns of Satan. Crucify him. Away with him. Put him to death. What is this if nothing else but hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent? 
Here it is, reaching its fullest insanity. And when the people of the seed of Satan condemn him, you see him hanging from the cross. A tree which used to bear good fruit now bears the outcome of the fullness of evil. Certainly the seed of the serpent has won. Another case. Another attempt. Another try by God to send a Messiah. It wasn't David. He was better than David. It wasn't Abraham. He was better than that. But here, he still stands. Crucified. Dead. But you know what was happening here the whole time. What was really happening or what was really being presented. We we see this in Colossians. That he who was dying there on the cross triumphing over the principalities and powers, condemning them to open shame and triumphing over them. We see the seed of the woman actually conquering the seed of the serpent by his own death, through his own substitution, because of his own love towards his own people. He died and was buried, and Satan and his demons thought that they had sealed their victory by rolling a stone over the mouth of the grave, sealing God's display in his failing work forever. But imagine the horror and the anguish as Jesus burst out from that grave. From under the sins of death and the wrath of God, he arose conquering grave, the grave. He rose conquering evil. He rose conquering death. The drama that we see of salvation, that we exalt and sing praises of in Easter, was not just foretold to us by the deliverance of a baby in a manger at Christmas time, but it was actually foretold to us all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15, where the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. And though his heel will be bruised, no doubt that dying was miserable, no doubt that being displayed in horror on the cross, being stabbed, being starved, being suffocated to death, hanging there, no doubt, but it was just like a bruised heel in compared to what really happened to Satan. Victory over the devil is not possible without this episode. Without the bruising of Christ's heel, he was very bruised, he very much died, and the devil thought he killed him eternally, but he only bruised him, forgetting the promise of Eden. His heel was bruised, but by his death, his deliverance unto death by God has destroyed the power of the devil forever and ever. Through Christ's perfection, the Son of God has perfectly fulfilled everything he needs to substitute himself for all of the seeds of the woman before him, for all of our own lives in here today. What was displayed on the cross was not just a demonstration over evil, but was actually an offering for God's people to come to him and to cling to him and to give themselves over to a loving, merciful God. So he went to the cross. He was lifted up to die. And there upon that cross, the sins of everyone who would believe in Christ Jesus would be wiped away. The wrath that we deserve because of our sins the wrath that we deserve because we have made ourselves enemies of God, the wrath that we deserve because we are just naturally not okay, we are naturally separate, and we are actively separating ourselves from God. The sins of everyone who would believe in Jesus have been wiped away because of his work on the cross. This is the exchange that the Bible has been talking about for generations and generations. The worst about me 
was laid upon him. And the best about him is now laid upon me. He was buried in the tomb, and on the third day, the power that was natural in him, the Son of God, God, was, God raised him from the dead. He came walking out of the tomb as a risen, living, victorious Savior. Now take yourself back to the drama that we saw in Genesis 3.15. The, the promise that was given to Satan. For years and years and years, like a maniac, he surely thought he was winning. And the very Son of God, he, he coerced and deceived people into killing him. Imagine the laughter that we, he would have had on that Saturday morning when the tomb was filled. But keep yourself within the drama. Imagine the horror or just the pathetic emptiness that Jesus or that Satan would have felt when he realized that the tomb was empty. When Jesus was walking around talking to men and women, showing the pierced hands and the hole in his side from the sword. Satan, if anything, has a good memory. Satan, if anything, is a really smart creature. Satan, if anything, ought to know the power of God and the wrath of God, but now he feels it because of what Jesus had done. That was the promise of hostility. That through the birth and the life of the woman's seed was now realized as the Son of God crushes evil by his life, by his death, and by his resurrection. And Christ says, if you come to me, I will not cast you out. Those who might have hid themselves in shame because of their sin, Jesus is actually saying, come to me, all of you who are overwhelmed at your sin. Cling to me, for I'm the only one who can offer forgiveness. I'm the only one who can offer true satisfaction. It's not Satan, but it's me. Jesus says, come to me, you broken people, and I will give you rest. Take my life, learn of me, for you will find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy and my chain is light. Now, I know how hard it is for all of us to continue to live in light of this. We still find ourselves active in sin. We still find ourselves trying to be holy and trying to be righteous. But what God continually says to us is for us to repent of ourselves or deny ourselves and to cling to the one who is truly victorious. Rather than grasping for straws, we are clinging to the one who is final, who is the foundation of fruit and life and righteousness. How glorious it would be to come into the way of life of the Lord Christ and to receive his salvation and everlasting salvation that it is understanding that the final death blow of Satan has been delivered. That the stronghold that Satan tries to put on those in the world is not fitting anymore. That he can tempt people all around us or even tempt you in your own life. But it's like a house built on sand. It just washes away because of what the foundation did for God's people. So you see this morning the problem of sin and you realize the promised hostility. But, but now I want you to finally grasp the promise of deliverance. Christ here has delivered the devil a crushing blow from which, from which the devil will never recover. But the end is, is not yet here in its fullness. The, the devil has received that mortal wound and that all who look to Christ and who trust and believe in him can be taken out of the dominion of Satan. We are rescued by God's work and are redeemed through this hope. Through Jesus, we are redeemed and rescued. And there will be a time when the seed of the woman 
our Lord Christ will come back again. And he'll come back finally to cast out all of his enemies. Satan and all who belong to him will be cast in what is called the lake of fire. This is a a damning work on Satan and God's enemies, but it is a really hopeful message for God's people. In Revelation 20, it says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now that is awful to think about when you put yourself in the mind of them, but it is really encouraging to be reminded of as a Christian that evil will finally have its reckoning. That Satan will finally have his day in court. And he'll be cast out. Evil and all of its friends will be burned out of God's glory. There will be a new heavens and new earth wherein we reside in righteousness. And Satan will finally be put into true darkness for all eternity. And Jesus shall reign wherever the sun shines. God in Christ will be perfectly victorious for all of us to see, and the devil will be broken of all might as the trumpets in heaven sound victoriously. And this victory over evil is done in all believers also. This is the hope that you and I have from this text. We see this cosmic battle between good and evil, and we recognize that if we follow the story all the way through, that good ultimately wins. But, but where we place ourselves now in the story is recognizing that God has done this for His people. God has done this for His elect. God has done this for His beloved. Friends, this is the Christian message, that by nature you belong to the devil. And that's what the world is trying to increase your understanding of or trying to influence your understanding of. That's why it laughs at the gospel and ridicules the speech of the blood of Christ. But what we recognize in our scriptures that actually those who are brought low are actually those who are lifted high. If you believe that God sent his own son into this world to deliver you and to rescue you, the outworking of this is your own rest. The outworking of this is your own hope. The devil can no longer touch you. The world, John's letter says, the evil one touches us not. We belong to God and God's seed abides in us because the great battle is already won. Now, too often we want to jump into the mundane pain of verse 17 where cursed is the ground because of you and, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And we, and we live in this reality every day. We recognize our inheritance is hard work or sinful natures or temptations all around us. But as Christians, we have to keep ourselves in an understanding and with a viewpoint of what has been done on the cross for us. We must be reminded that about, or we must be reminded about the God who mercifully blots out our sins, brings us close. We need to be reminded of Christ's appeasement. So seeing here in Genesis 3 chapter, or Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, that God had already provided his sacrifice for Adam's sins. And this reassures us that that he is not only merciful and loving, but indeed is holy and just and trustworthy, and we can believe and trust in his promises. So when we are entering or are fully in, for many of us, this, this season of Christmas, 
or this season of an incarnation or this time of remembering things like joy and hope and all of God's love, we should remember at the very beginning there was a problem. And there was a promise of hostility, but there is also within this a promise of deliverance. And what we see happening through the Christmas season is that this very promise was delivered to us. The seed of the woman was delivered to us. And though it might look like a precious baby, be reminded that it does come as a lamb but fights as a lion. It's exalted as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. And this gives us a worshiping heart that is like a battle cry, aiming to make our time with God not gentle, but as loud and celebratory, like clanging bells or loud trumpets. We remember that the, God of, uh, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. The influence of Genesis 3 verse 15 is clearly to be seen in our scriptures. This is confidence in the coming triumph of God which stirs us to worship God now where, where God was true to his promise then and God will be true to his promise to us. And so this gives us courage and purpose where we want to fight back against evil where we see ourselves already on the winning team in a battle that God has already won, but we get to participate in going against evil, in sinning less, in aiming towards righteousness, knowing that the victory is already won. We push, push on towards the prize and exalting the name of the victory and shaming the crushed head of the serpent. O oh, death, where is your sting, we sing. Death is crushed to death, and life is ours to live, we shout. So we fight back knowing that we are on the narrow path towards the heavenly delight and glory. That the gospel given to us by God is not one that says it will get better, but the gospel isn't just try a little bit harder, but the gospel proclaims, behold, the empty tomb. Behold the cross where no one hangs any longer. We worship the one of justice because he eternally saw evil and overcame it with his good son. Here, grace alone is more than a battle cry. It's more than an attempt to make things right. It's more than a kind gesture towards good men. It's more than just circling around something that seems to be okay if it just had a little bit more godly influence on it. It is the resurrected heel who crushes the serpent's head. So Christian, take comfort this Christian Christmas season. Take comfort in that you were once lost in your darkest hour, but by God's nature... He not only knew a way, but provided a way for you. It's Christ who loves us by leading us to the cross where he once gave us, lot, gave us his life and showing us that he is no longer there, that he has fought the battle and he has won the battle. He once conquered the power of evil there and forevermore he keeps us in his fold. It's our sin that shows our need of Christmas. It's God's solution that provides our joy in this season. And it's the satisfying solution, the gift of grace and mercy from Christ Jesus that's been given to us, that allows us to hear, to know, and to understand God's love. And so when we look at passages like this, we can be reminded of how good and gracious he is by pointing directly at Satan, by triumphing over him physically, and by delivering us eternally for his own glory and for our good. Let's pray together.
Father, we come to you this morning thankful and amazed at your goodness towards us and your mercy towards us because of your work for us. We pray that in this season that we would be reminded of your good work, that we would be reminded of the, the true miracle and, and the truly divine gift that you have given us by sending the Son of God for us. Father, we pray that our hearts would be turned to worship him as we truly ought. We pray that we would be given uh, power and courage to flee evil, to flee wretchedness, and to know and understand the path that you have provided for us and cling to you. Father, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.